Gracious God, you've promised that your holy word, which goes forth from your mouth, will not return to you empty, but it will accomplish what you desire, and it will succeed in the matter for which you have sent it. May your word have its way, we pray, in every heart this day, through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Please be seated. So, question, how many of you are right-hand dominant? You prefer your right hand to do things. Raise your, raise your right hand if you are, okay. All right, yeah, I think about 90% of the population is right-hand dominant. Uh, how many of you are left-hand dominant? Okay, Andy. Okay, Adela, you're left-hand dominant. You are, okay. All right, very good. How many of you are mixed-handed? Okay, Mike. Really? Okay, Tim, you are mixed-handed. Yeah, I, I think I am. I, I write with my right hand. I can write with my left, but it doesn't look as pretty. Um, I throw a baseball with my right, a football with my left. I shoot basketball with my left. I could throw a baseball with my right. I'm actually more accurate, but I don't have a, a glove for the right hand. Yeah, so people can be mixed-handed. And, you know, something interesting about God, God is mixed-handed as well. That's point number one in your sermon outline. Roman number one. God is mixed-handed. That means you do different tasks, with different hands, okay? Rather than being right-hand dominant exclusively or left-hand dominant exclusively, you're mixed. That's God. Letter A, therefore, Jesus says, render, we'll say more about that word shortly, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Point number one, Caesar's things equal God's left hand his left-hand authority. That would be civil government, keeping the peace, maintaining domestic tranquility, and all of that good stuff. The government, that's the job of the government, to catch crooks, to catch stray dogs, to keep the peace. Maintain order. And point number two, God's things equal God's right hand his right-hand authority. That's the church. That's the gospel ministry. That's the forgiveness of sins. That's the restoration of broken relationships. That's the work of God's right hand, giving eternal life, a life beyond the reach of death. That's God's right-hand work. Now, letter B, neither obligation, neither ministry interferes with the other. They harmonize. They harmonize. And Paul covers that in Romans chapter 13. You can look that up, and I encourage you to do so. They complement, the left hand and the right hand complement one another. Now, the Pharisees didn't believe that. The Pharisees, in our gospel reading for this morning, they believed that loyalty to Caesar was disloyalty to God. But the opposite is true. Loyalty to Caesar 
can actually be loyalty to God because God is the power, the authority behind Caesar. He sets Caesar up. Caesar's his man. We see in the Old Testament reading for this morning, Cyrus, the Persian emperor, is God's anointed, God's Messiah in a sense. God's appointed him to do certain things, just as he raised up Pharaoh to do certain things, Herod to do certain things. It doesn't mean that Pharaoh and Herod always followed God's will. They don't always follow God's will, do they? The government doesn't always do that. But it's still God's government, and God works through it. That's the point. And God's left hand maintains the peace so that God's right hand can do its work. And that's the ministry of the gospel. And also, when Jesus says, give to God the things that are God, he's saying in a roundabout way, he's saying that Caesar is not all powerful. There's other obligations you have as a citizen, obligations toward God. Caesar is God's left hand. God is the ultimate authority, and Caesar's accountable to him. That's what Jesus is saying in a roundabout way. That's the implication. Roman numeral two. The Pharisees employ flattery. They employ flattery, which ironically expresses the truth about Jesus. And I give a reference there to John eleven forty nine 49 through 51, where um, the Jewish ruling council are perplexed about what to do. Jesus is there in Jerusalem. He's doing his thing. How can we put a stop to him? And Caiaphas prophecies, unknowingly, he prophecies about Jesus. And he says to the Sanhedrin, you know nothing at all. It's better that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Meaning, we put him to death, the Romans will no longer come down on us. They're no longer a threat to us. If we get this insurrectionist away, Unknowingly, he speaks the truth about Jesus. It's expedient, it's proper that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation and the world perish. So the Pharisees are flattering Jesus. They're saying, teacher, we know that you're true and we know that you teach the way of God in truth and you don't care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. In other words, they're saying, you are so honest that you'll speak the truth even at a cost to yourself. Even though there's consequences for you, you'll still speak the truth. We know that about you. And they're right. So when they ask Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They believe they have him where they want him. Because if Jesus says, no, you should not pay the tax, then he will incur the wrath of the Roman authorities who will brand Jesus as an insurrectionist. But if he says, yes, you should pay the tax, then he will lose the support of the people who see the tax as unfair and unpatriotic. Either way, they think, Jesus will lose because the Pharisees are convinced that any loyalty to Caesar is automatically disloyalty to God. But Jesus will evade their trap by speaking the truth they haven't considered, that loyalty to Caesar is actually loyalty to God because Caesar is God's left hand. His power comes from God. To obey Caesar 
in almost every case, is to obey God. Unless Caesar asks you to do something contrary to God's will, then you must obey God rather than Caesar. We should. So the Pharisees seek to entrap Jesus, but it's not a fair fight. It never is with Jesus. Letter A, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the image of the invisible God. In other words, Jesus is God with skin on. Jesus is God made visible, and you will not win a debate with God. That's why the Pharisees marvel at his answer. That marvel, that word marvel, means something supernatural is taking place here. These aren't just ordinary thoughts. They're the thoughts of God himself. And so the Pharisees retreat. They go away, and they leave Jesus alone because they realize they cannot go toe-to-toe with him. They give up. Now, next week, the Pharisees will come at him. But the, or I, I should say the Sadducees will come at him. But this week, the Pharisees have had enough. They exit stage left. So letter B. He, Jesus, is the firstborn of many brethren, Romans 8, 29. Jesus is the perfect image of God. He is the, he is the first true human being since Adam and Eve before they fell. He is what it looks like to be truly human, perfectly obedient to God. Now, our first parents were like that. They were made in the image of God. But God's image in us has been disfigured. It's been altered by sin. However, God's image is being restored in us daily as a result of our baptism, as a result of our continual hearing of the Word of God, we are being, gradually, we're being remade into God's image. And God's image will be fully complete in you and in me at the resurrection. So Jesus is the firstborn of all of us who are being remade in the image of God. Day by day, as we hear his word, as we remember our baptism, we're being conformed to Christ. We're being made like him. And according to Jesus... If the coin bears Caesar's image, then the coin belongs to Caesar. Therefore, give it back to him. In the same way, if you bear God's image, you belong to God. Therefore, give yourself back to him, both in your life and in your death. Give yourself back to him. Roman numeral three. The word render is kind of an archaic word. Render, among other things, in this context, render means pay back or give back, implying that taxes are a debt that is owed. Taxes are a debt that is owed. Caesar Augustus created what has been called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. There were no major wars going on in the Mediterranean basin in the time of Caesar Augustus and later. And a beautiful system of roads connected all the regions of the empire. Commerce flowed over those roads. Soldiers kept the peace flowing over those roads. And the gospel ministry flowed over those roads as well. It was like their internet. It was a beautiful system of roads. 
And Jesus is telling the Pharisees that Caesar has made life good for you. He's given you a better life. So Jesus is saying, in effect, you owe him. Pay back what you owe Caesar. Render is paying back a debt. Caesar is God's servant for your good. And when you honor him, you honor God who gave him that authority. So letter A. If we avail ourselves, this is a quote from Hilary of Poitiers, um, an early church father. If we avail ourselves of the lawful protection of Caesar, we cannot complain if we're required to render or to give back. So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give back to God what is God's. Not only is everything you possess from God, but everything you possess is on loan, on loan from God. And eventually, every loan comes due. Someday, he will call for it back. And that includes your life. Letter B, the Lord gives and the Lord takes back. The Lord gives and the Lord takes. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells the parable of the rich fool. His land brought forth abundantly. He had more than he knew what to do with. He thought, oh, I know, I'll build bigger barns and then I'll be set for a long, long time. I can take back, I can kick back, take my ease. I don't have to worry about a thing. It's going to float through life. And God said, you fool, this very night, Your life will be required of you. I'm asking for it back. I gave it to you as a gift. Now I'm recalling the gift. And all the wealth that you've gathered, whose will it be? Whose will it be? So less than a month ago, a young woman, 18 years of age, was in a horrific automobile accident. She was pulling out onto a highway. She was a student teacher. Pulled out onto a highway and was T-boned by a truck. She was care flighted to Indianapolis. I didn't know her, but my wife did family had no church home and I went up to visit with the young woman but she's in a coma severely brain damaged and the doctors said if she comes out of the coma she won't be the same person anymore at her bedside I looked at the mother and and I asked has she been baptized Her mother said no. I said, well, God has placed the child into your hands. Do you want her to be baptized? The mother said yes. I explained to her what baptism is from the scriptures, that it's not something that we do for God. It's not our testimony. It is God's work. It is 
God washing away sins. It is God giving his spirit. It is God giving a new birth and a new life, on and on. The scripture speaks amazing things of God's work in baptism. It all depends on him. And so we brought some water, and I baptized Jacqueline in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, I didn't know Jacqueline. I did not know what was in her heart, what she believed or didn't believe. But I know what's in God's heart. I know how God feels about Jacqueline. He gave his son for her just as he gave his son for you and for me. I know what God, I know how God feels about her. And that's what matters most. And so we gave Jacqueline that gift of baptism. And the next day, her life was required of her. God recalled the loan. Someday the Lord who gave you life will require the life back from you. He will call the loan. Death is no respecter of persons. The grave consumes the young and the old alike. And to be a Christian is to be okay with that. To be a Christian is to understand that even the ministry of death is, is really and truly, it is God's left hand at work. It is God's left hand at work. And therein lies our peace. And herein lies our peace. Death is not God's last word. It's not the last word he speaks. Roman numeral four. God is right-hand dominant. Even people that are mixed-handed have a dominant hand. And that's true of God. God is right-hand dominant, even though he's also mixed-handed. God favors his right hand, and his right hand is always associated with his saving work. And that's good news for all sinners, including you and me. You know, James Madison wrote in Federalist Paper number 51, quote, if men were angels, no government would be necessary, end quote. But we are not angels. And even after our baptism and our conversion to Christ, we are sometimes more demonic than we are angelic. Therefore, government is necessary to maintain peace and order even among us Christians. And by doing that, God prepares the way for the gospel to be proclaimed, for sins to be forgiven, and for reconciliation between people to be accomplished. God delights in showing mercy. He's right-hand dominant. He favors that. He delights in announcing forgiveness to us in baptism, in the absolution spoken by the minister, and in the Lord's Supper. He delights in that. He keeps order because he must. But he forgives and he shows mercy because that's his heart. God delights in the ministry of his right hand and his right hand is Jesus. It is Christ crucified and risen for you and for me and for the world. That's his right hand. 
Acts chapter 7 records the martyrdom of Stephen. And as he's being stoned, he looks up and he says, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That's Jesus. St. Paul in Romans 8 wrote this, Who can possibly condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died for us, more than that, who was raised for us, and who is at the right hand of God, even now interceding for us. That's Jesus. That's God's right hand. And, and even the Old Testament looked forward to this ministry of Christ at the right hand of God. Psalm 98, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Thank Jesus. In Psalm 138, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. With your right hand, you save me. Thank Jesus. In Psalm 118, shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. My friends, that is Christ. And that is the message of the church in the world today. Christ is the ministry of God's right hand. And it is the work of God's left hand which makes it possible. When we pray for good government, we are really praying for the gospel ministry to proceed unhindered. My friends, Caesar's authority was not opposed to the authority of God. They're one and the same. The former must serve the latter. Through the work of his left hand, God creates the conditions necessary for the work of his right hand to be accomplished, for the gospel to be heard and to be believed. That was true then, and that is still true today. And even when Caesar gets out of line, He's still under the control of the one who loves you and loves me. And that is our comfort. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.